I want to begin by giving just a quick recap of what kind of what we've covered so far, if I can do that, hopefully in 20 minutes. We'll see. Um, quick recap. So we're trying to situate Machen, uh, both historically, uh, religiously, and as well as politically. Okay, what he thought, uh, what was his mindset toward uh, the political area, the political field, as well as uh, his religious convictions, because they often overlapped for him. Um, and often it did not. So, right. Uh, we, we, so we situated him in his context as not so much a fundamentalist, but a Presbyterian. And his controversy wasn't fundamentalism versus modernism, right? Fundamentalism being uh, conservative Christianity versus liberalism. But it was in the Presbyterian church. It was a Presbyterian controversy more than anything else for him. Now, for uh, broader evangelicals or the broader Christian church would have viewed him as a leading voice in the controversy. But there were problems with Machen that you know, fundamentalists wouldn't um, accept. Uh, one of those was that he wasn't a dispensationalist. He didn't view the Bible to be read in, in dispensations. Okay. Uh, he was devoted to covenant theology, so he, he read the Bible through the lens of covenant, not dispensations. Um, we, we know dispensationalism is probably the most popular way to read the Bible in, in, in our country. It is the most popular form of Christianity. It's the Christianity we see uh, on the media, mostly, is dispensationalism. Um, we know the Left Behind series, very popular. Machen repudiated, I mean, he wrote awful things about dispensationalism because uh, traditionally it was a heresy called Chileism, or Chileism, I for forgot how to pronounce it, one of those. Um, and it was a heresy in the Reformed Church. The, the Reformed Church considered dispensationalism heretical in the beginning. And only now, I think, uh, post-World War II, it became more acceptable, um, post-Second Great Awakening, right? It became more acceptable because of the uh, second revival in America. Uh, and now it's the most popular version of Christianity. Also, we wanted to situate him in his political views. Um, and I, wa I want to address some of the interesting conversations I had after the last lecture. So a few, few things uh, here. Um, so we situated him as a libertarian, a small government libertarian. He didn't believe in big government. Um, well, most Christians believe in big government to some extent, okay, at that time. Uh, he was a small government libertarian. He didn't want government intruding on private citizens at all, right? He was against, you know, child labor laws. He was against laws about jaywalking, like all this stuff. He even was against uh, the, the expansion of the highway through certain mountainous regions that were beautiful. It was God's creation. He said, nope. So in a sense, he was like an environmentalist. Uh, not so much a tree hugger, but he was, uh, he was concerned that the government was laying down too many highways and places that they shouldn't. Now, you, you don't have to agree with him on everything, but I'm just laying out uh, Machen and some of his views um, and he was also uh, opposed to um, uh, the League of Nations, uh, the finding of the League of Nations. He was uh, Woodrow Wilson, which was a friend, a family friend of his. He opposed uh, his po politics, 
They were both Democrats, right? They were both Democrats. Machen was a Democrat. At the time, you had many different types of Democrats uh, in, in this time. It's a different time, right? All together. Um, and you had libertarian Democrats who did not want government doing much of anything. Their role is not to spread the gospel, but to punish wickedness and protect innocent lives. And that was pretty much it uh, for Machen. Everything else, uh, Machen would have disagreed with. Um, and so in, in turn, he also disagreed with Christian nationalism. Okay. He would disagree with Christian nationalism, especially the brand that's coming, rising up today. Um, I know when we think of the woke movement in our country, we, also, we often think of the left and the extreme left. But there is an extreme right, too. And they are just as woke. Uh, the extreme right um, has a different view of the, in a different reading of the Constitution of the United States. Machen was a constitutionalist. He believed in the Constitution of the United States. Um, and the, the uh, right-wing woke, uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, calls it that, the right-wing woke um, movement and the left wing woke both want to undo the constitution they don't believe that the constitution um, well okay so you have two streams of Christian nationalists there are those who want to undo the US constitution and those who want to reinterpret the constitution um, Machen would have not agreed with either and this I believe someone I believe it was Linda asked about Machen's views on segregation and how he was a segregationist and some of his racist comments he made. And I'm not trying to defend him at all, um, which is obvious for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, but his views, I believe, on segregation and why he was a segregationist sprung out of his libertarianism. It didn't spring out of this Christian nationalism that we see in the KKK, okay, the Ku Klux Klan, whom Woodrow Wilson was also a part of, right, or um, supporting to some extent, maybe with, you know, some distance. Um, he, he was in favor of those views because they had a social Darwinism, Darwinistic view of man, and they were promoting a different version of the Constitution, that the Constitution was... Um, meant only for white Christian men. It wasn't meant for other faiths and other, you know, outside of, you know, this circle. Uh, Machen would not agree with that. He was a, he was a libertarian, and so he, that meant he was a cultural pluralist. He was a cultural liberal, not a biblical liberal, not, not a liberal when it came to uh, government spending, but he was a liberal when it came to uh, culture or what makes up the fabric of society? He believed that it should be pluralistic, okay. based on classical liberalism, right? the classical liberalism of the U.S. Constitution. And so his segregationist views would have, I think he would have leaned towards a progressive integration rather than a forced integration. Whether you agree, you agree with that or not. And I would probably disagree with him on some terms um, because his argument was that the black culture had not 
risen to the occasion in order to be integrated with whites yet. They, they would have suffered um, because they weren't as, um, they didn't progress in their, you know, field of education, uh, in technology, this, that, and the other, in, in order to uh, integrate. That was his argument because Princeton was integrated in the 1920s, very early, right? That's, that's very early. Um, and I would disagree with him based on fact, on, on stats, that actually uh, the, the black community was actually really up there with, with in every area by that time when it came to economics. Um, you think of George Washington Carver and all these uh, leaders at the time who were Christians, by the way, um, Booker T. Washington, who all raised, rose to the occasion and led others. And r the real root, and he talks about socialism in the introduction, but the real root to the decay of the black community actually came from socialism more than anything else, if you really want to trace numbers and stats. But we're not going to get into all that um, too much. But you, you, So his view of uh, segregation needs to be qualified. Um, needs to be qualified a, a little bit. He didn't hold to the same views of the other segregationists who actually believed that blacks were an inferior race. Um, there are even some Presbyterian writers who've written to that vein from the South. He didn't have that view. Uh, again, he was a cultural pluralist. He wasn't trying to make um, uh, the U.S. Christian, uh, Christian nation per se where it's governed only by Christians, okay? where the Christian nationalists of today are. They want to undo the fabric or the roots of um, our founding basically. Now, again, we need to qualify, and that's why we need to qualify what a Christian nationalist is. It's not someone who believes in the original reading of the Constitution. So, now, and this is important because we need to situate him in his beliefs. Why? Because when he viewed society, he was a pluralist. Not in the church, though. Not in the church. The church was to be uh, governed according to scripture and, um, and mind you, he believed the governing society was in that way was biblical, going back to Noah. Not Moses, Noah, right? We don't go to Moses for civil law. That's been abrogated. We, we go back to Noah. Natural law, last six commandments. That, that's, that's kind of the traditional reformed view. But anyway, so... Um, so this is to situate him where he is so we can understand his thought process in the rest of the book and why he doesn't address certain things, right, that fundamentalists would address. He was addressing specific things that were affecting the Presbyterian church. And it was um, bad doctrine, basically. Bad doctrine coming from both sides, Okay, not just one side. It, it, remember, the problem wasn't the liberal coming in. The problem was the majority were moderates allowing the liberal to come. So you had a, this broad evangelical view. And I, I've rooted that mindset going back to the First Great Awakening. These, these were problems in the First Great Awakening. Um, in, in the battle between the old side and the new side. 
And I listed various problems last, last time, uh, one of them being con uh, conversionism, right? Um, which is something to the effect of um, never being satisfied with um, a quiet life, a, a quiet Christian life, right? There has to be more. There has to be this zeal that shows up, right, in church, right? You see that a lot. It leads, you know, the kind of the second great awakening in church becomes like entertainment almost. You go into, you know, it, it's all emotion-based. Uh, and if you're not having this quote-unquote zeal, zeal can't be quiet, mind you, right, to, to them. If you don't have this zeal, then there, there's something wrong. And we know George Whitfield was the first true celebrity. Question. Yeah. Uh, somewhat. The Keswick movement. Somewhat. Somewhat. No, conversionism really, I, I was situated in um, du the Dutch Reformed, so pietism. Piet is synonymous for pietism. Uh, so you go back to um, Lutheranism. Lutheranism, you had pietists who were dissatisfied with a doctrinal church and they wanted more quote unquote zeal. But it was at the expense of doctrine. Pietism is always at the expense of doctrine. We're, we have nothing against piety. But when it's at the expense of doctrine, that becomes a problem. Is that what came up with the holiness movement? Holiness movement is like the snowball, the, the huge snowball okay. after. Yeah. yeah. So you go to uh, German Lutherans, then who was uh, influenced by them uh, was a man by Theodore Freligason who traveled here in the 1700s. Uh, he was a pietist. Uh, and he's the major influence on Edwards and the Great Awakening. And that's when you begin to see the doctrine kind of slip. Um, conversionism, uh, the doctrine of conviction of sin, they placed outside of the order of salvation. So conviction of sin, you can be convicted of sin for months and never... You know, never come to faith and never be a true believer. And there's, you know, the pulpits, they, they kind of are happy about that. You know, this is a good thing. You're convicted of sin. Keep, you know, keep going deeper. Keep going deeper. And you, but if you keep relying on yourself and keep going deeper, you're, you're never going to arrive to a place to say, yes, I'm, you know, I, I accept the Lord. Uh, I know people who, come to faith who had a slight conviction of sin and had a very stoic kind of conversion that happens right? who are we to kind of and that was the problem uh, with the first great awakening the conviction of sin was placed outside of um, the order of salvation and this led to many other problems and doctrinal um, other doctrines were falling by the wayside Especially the doctrine of the church. Especially the doctrine of the church. I was speaking to somebody just in the last couple of weeks. The 1790s, which is post-First Great Awakening, had the lowest recorded church attendance percentage-wise in history. More than today. Right. So... Did the First Great Awakening really bear as much fruit as some historians have said? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's true. 
Um, it, and the trend has been that the, the new converts became more social activists than they were actually churchmen and women. Okay, that, that, that's been the trend of the, the awakenings. The awakenings, uh, even recently there was a so-called revival, it had more to do with social change and social progress than it had to do with actual doctrinal salvation. And that's another problem that I didn't mention last time was that doctrine of the church fell by the wayside in two ways. The so-called conversions that were happening, most, most of them were people who were already members, people who already professed faith in a Presbyterian church, a lot of them, and they left to go to a more revivalistic church to become members there. So they were just converting converts for the most part. You had, you had ministers who were faithful gospel ministers in churches, in Presbyterian churches, but because they were strong on doctrine, right? We, we spoke about this last time. In, in the OPC, you, if you're going to be a minister, you must subscribe to the Confession and Catechisms of the, the Westminster Standards. Um, this started back in 1729 by a man named John Thompson. And uh, he was one of the leading voices in the Adopting Act that ministers must subscribe. The First Great Awakening, those who were you know, the Tennant brothers being two of them, I, I got into them last time if you go back and listen, they opposed that, that subscription. And that's what it was about for them. And that's where the sermon, uh, The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry, came from. It was borderline slander. Because the minister was, there was no evidence that he wasn't converted. The, the problem was, they were requiring ministers to go through rigorous training and rigorous um, questioning before they be, become ministers. We do that today in the OPC. We follow that same. That's why I would argue, even though there's some new siders in our, in our denomination, but I would argue we come from an old side tradition. We must, it doesn't matter your experience, your conversion experience, whatever it is, it's great. I mean, there's many versions of it. We know there's an Isaac version and a... Paul version. Isaac never knew a time where he didn't believe. Paul, there was a punctiliar time where he came to faith. That's not what's important. Are you going to stand on these doctrines? What's really important. And so that, that, was, that was the issue here. And it happened old side, new side. That was the first great awakening, that battle. The second time, second great awakening, even more doctrinal problems. It kind of snowballed, got, <clears throat> got bigger. And it was uh, old school, new school. And this is all within the Presbyterian Church. So the Presbyterian Church split twice. and They split over the Civil War. And then they split over old school, new school. Um, Charles Hodge, I mentioned last time, Charles Hodge. <clears throat> so it, it's better to unite with the South, who were old school. Because he was old school, right? He believed in doctrine is the foundation of the church. Uh, than to unite with the new school. But what happened? The new school and old school united in 18... 69, after, after Lincoln died. Okay. Because, you know, we won the war. What? What does that have to do with the church? So why if you won the war? There's no more slavery, but what about the doctrine? What, 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 what about the core doctrines we believe? The new school, you know, was, was practically Arminian at that time. 
but they still united. And this, these problems remain in uh, the Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian New Brunswick. The Presbytery of New Brunswick was the great awakening, the first great awakening presbytery that was made so the Tennant brothers wouldn't bother the rest of the presbyteries, right? They, they were kind of secluded in one area so they wouldn't bother uh, the old side ministers in, say, Philadelphia. And, and it's the Presbytery of New Brunswick that would go and discipline Machen later on. The same presbytery. So you, you see, see why it's important to know the history because you kind of see the pattern. Um, I, I mentioned last time that there's always a problem in New York and New England. I don't really mean that. We have a solid, we have a solid presbytery here. So if any of our presbyters heard the last lecture, I don't really mean that there's a problem with us. We have, a, <clears throat> we have solid men in our presbytery. We're, we're not going liberal. Um, any, I don't think anytime soon. Um, so, and, and this is all important. Uh, this history is all important to know to know the background to situate Machen and to situate his introduction. And I would ask Ed, Ed, uh, last time Ed shared some really interesting history about um, what he read of, because I went on a tangent, as I always do. I'm already going over my time right now. Uh, uh, a tangent about uh, Abraham Lincoln and how, um, how Abraham Lincoln, you know, you had the choice, he had the choice between going to a new school Presbyterian church or an old school Presbyterian church. And guess what side he chose? The old school, they were preaching, you know, what we preach, the doctrines of grace, Westminster standards, what we find in there. Uh, the new school is preaching activism. We need to abolish slavery. If you're a real Christian, you will abolish slavery. You will go after, you know, all this stuff. Which side do you think he chose? He chose the old school. He attended an old school Presbyterian church for the remainder of his life uh, since the beginning of the war. And he said the reason why was because they preached the sovereignty of God. And that came out in his, uh, his speeches. He, he spoke of the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. So, like we preached today. I didn't do that on purpose, by the way. Um, which is amazing. And, and Ed shared because there's always this wonder of whether or not he was a Christian, whether Lincoln was a Christian. Uh, and Ed shared that um, the week he was to join the church he was attending for so long, he, he already met with the elders, the session, uh, to join. And the week he was to join, he, he was assassinated. So maybe that clears it up. I don't know. Hopefully that's a, that's a good, good recording of history. But anyway, so all this uh, important stuff. Um, to know the background of what leads up to this Presbyterian controversy. So you have, go back to the 1700s. You got the old side, new side split. 1800s, you got north and south split, and then within the north, the old school and new school split. All, all over the same things. All doctrine. Doctrine is the foundation. You, you need to know doctrine. Our lives spring out of doctrine. It doesn't, you know, uh, we, it's not just about doing what Jesus said. It's about knowing Jesus. So, I will begin the introduction finally. So you can follow along. And also, the, um, I highly recommend a lot of the books listed. I should have put an asterisk. I think it's the last book listed. Recovering the Reformed Confessions. 
Uh, a lot of my information that I got even from the old side, new side debate comes from that book. And I think you could get it fairly cheap. Um, it's a pretty thick one, but it explains the difference between being Reformed and being Calvinistic evangelical. Right. There is a difference. And it has to do with the church, has to do with the ordinary means of grace being um, what we go to. Um, because we can easily, you know, there are a lot of, the Puritans, for instance, were pietists and to a certain degree. But their solutions were never, keep looking in yourself. and It was go back to the ordinary means. Come back to church on Sunday. You're feeling down and out? Come back to church on Sunday. Fell into sin? Come back to church on Sunday. Right? There's ordinary means. Doctrine, foundations. That, that's where it's at. It's not this high spiritual life. Right? It's simple. Christian life is simple. Okay. Um, okay, so he begins by stating the purpose of the book. The purpose was not to decide the religious issue of the day. The purpose was to present the issue as sharply and clearly as possible and allow you to decide for yourself what to believe. Now, this is what we do when we preach the gospel and call men to repent. It is persuasion, not coercion. Uh, we can't control the outcome. But at the same time, as Christians, it is incumbent on us not to back down in presenting the message, the true message. So uh, Machen had the conviction that he had to present and defend the truths of what we believe as Christians in a clear and precise way. Uh, because just like now, back in 1923, it was not popular to present clear-cut definition of terms in religious matters. It wasn't. It wasn't popular. It wasn't popular to stand your ground. Uh, just like today, to say that this is what the Bible teaches, and in order to be a Christian, you must believe this was not popular back then. Okay, uh, From the majority of Christians. Uh, human depravity has not changed, though the common cultural sins have changed, right? Um, because there are always two ditches on the sides of the road that we can fall in. There is the one ditch that claims to know everything about God, even the mysteries, the secret mysteries about God that he has chosen not to reveal to us. Uh, this is true for Near Eastern religions and uh, Roman Catholicism. But we must remember the oft-quoted text that I often quote, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed, that is the scriptures, belong to us and our children forever. Then there's the other ditch that says, we can never know what the Bible truly teaches. That, that's the other ditch, right? It's kind of a false humility. Um, we never know what the Bible teaches or what Christians are supposed to believe because it is so confusing. Who can really understand it? So are you saying that God is a God of confusion? We, you've got to be careful. We can never really know what God said. So he's a God of confusion. Or has he laid it out in his word? Right? Uh, now, there are things in Scripture that are difficult. Right. Uh, what was it? Peter that said that about Paul? Um, they're difficult, but not impossible to understand in the scriptures. And then there are clear teachings in scriptures. So just like today, if you draw a line in the sand to say, this is what Christians must believe to be con considered a Christian, and if you don't, 
than you are on the other side of this line. It was considered, as, as Machen says, an impious proceeding. It makes you sound prideful, according to the, the moderate or the, the liberal. Because there's this uh, false definition of humility out there that says you can't really know anything, right? So you can't really defend anything or tell other people that they're wrong. That's, a, that's false humility. That, that's not true humility. Uh, th- this is what passes for humility even today. Uh, but that is just another way to silence people with convictions, such as Christians. But as soon as you question their definition of humility and ask, well, how do you know that nobody can really know anything for sure? Aren't you saying that you really know this? Right? Once you do that, you, you see all that humility that they once had just drain out of their face. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. You, you could just uh, see the humility on their face evaporate, and they become on the attack. This is the world that Machen lived in. It's like you're living in a twilight zone. It's, uh, you, you know, um, you're living in a world where it's governed by confusion. And it's the same problem today. Uh, you can boldly stand for truth and you'll scare people away. Um, and and it's, it's really sad. Uh, and we, we've become harder to convince uh, in our day than ever before. Uh, this is the world that we live in today. But guess what? This is the world that Jesus lived in. This is the world that Abraham lived in. And this is the world that Lot lived in. It really hasn't changed. Uh, I'm sure there were some well-meaning folks who were worried that if you take such a firm stand for the truth that it would affect ministry and it would discourage outreach uh, because how are you going to relate to anyone if you're calling them sinners in need of a savior? Right? Same problem today. Same problem today. Don't stand for truth because you might scare somebody, somebody away. Hence why we have so little people in Sunday school. Just kidding. That was a a joke. Um, But Machen would counter this by saying that the type of religion that rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meaning, so you could take a phrase in the Bible and just give it another meaning, uh, or if it shrinks from controversial matters, this religion will never stand amid the shocks of life. What counsel would this religion give to a mother who lost a child? Or a widower who lost his wife? Oh, you can never truly know. Right? You can't really know that there is a heaven. You can't really know that Jesus was raised bodily. See the problem? If you don't know God and the doctrine of God, what comfort can you give? Can't really give much at all. If you don't know that he is a God who does not change, that he is almighty and all-powerful, where will your confidence be when it is time to suffer and experience these shocks of life? This is what Jesus meant when he said that you are to build your lives on his word, for his word is the solid rock and foundation. Don't build your houses on sand. Build your houses on the truth of his word. Uh, But Machen also noticed, which is also true today, that it is the less important matters that men will agree on, like serving and caring for the poor. Uh, and it's the more important things that men will fight. Now that sounds controversial, but Jesus even said this. 
For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Who is more important, Jesus or the poor? That sounds controversial, doesn't it? Especially today. I mean, where people view Christianity as mostly just a hum- humanitarian movement. Right? Who's more important, Jesus asked, the poor or me? You've got to make a decision here. Now, that does not mean we don't care for the poor. We always care for the poor. The poor are always with us, and we're always called to care for the poor. But we're also called to know Jesus and to know doctrine. Right? Um, it's like someone said to me once, um, I wish, maybe some of you know this person, I wish we could pick all the good things or the more important teachings from each denomination and make this one big Christian church. But my question is, who is going to be in charge and picking what is most important, what is not that important? At that time, to the moderates and to the liberals, it's not that important if a minister believes in the resurrection of the dead. So imagine that conversation, how that would go as far as, you know, uh, OPC versus uh, broad, broader denominations. But this is the tendency of the church. This is the tendency I see in every church. It doesn't matter how strong, how orthodox. This is the human tendency. Uh, the tendency of the church is to blur our differences so that we can unite, quote unquote, to take on the world and the culture together. This is what we're seeing today. Okay? Let's unite because we're facing a whole lot of societal problems. Oh, it doesn't really matter what, what you believe. It matters what we're doing. And I kind of agree with uniting with non-believers to get things done in politics. and in, That's fine, but never say we're on the same page when it comes to God. I won't attend your prayer breakfast. Because I, I don't think you believe in this one true God. Okay. So you've you got to know the differences, the, the distinctions we need to make. Um, because in doing that, we run the risk of opening the doors to liberalism and false teaching. We, we, we run the risk to, you know, we're, we're, we're these guards at the front gates of society, but we left the door open in the back of the church for all sorts of false teaching. I mentioned this last time. This is happening in college universities today. There's a conservative influencer who outright says he doesn't believe in the resurrection, but he's given voice in various uh, uh, Christian colleges. Um, We're not on the same page when it comes to God. But that's where they say he's coming. Oh yeah, he believes in God. Like He doesn't believe in all that stuff. But... He's on the same page because he's tackling all these other cultural issues. That's great. I commend him for that. He's tackling these cultural issues, but we don't have the same God. Don't confuse it, right? There's a difference. So, and uh, Machen's solution to the problem uh, in the church started in the pulpit, right? It starts in the pulpit, word, sacrament, and prayer. He was a word, sacrament, and prayer guy, and we see this throughout the book. That's where he puts the solution to the problem in the church. Not so much the problem in society because um, we don't want to treat the issues of society um, or or treat the gospel as a solution to problems in society. That's not what it's meant for. Uh, The gospel is not meant to fix this world. It's meant to call people to God for a new world, 
Uh, this world is always going to be in shambles in one way or another. Christians are called to bless the world, and we are a blessing to the world. But it's, we're not establishing the kingdom of God here. Okay, the kingdom of God comes to us. Right, so, again, the, the view of Christian nationalism wouldn't have worked for, for Machen. He, he didn't believe in it. Um, so again, he, he mentions the purpose of the book. Then he speaks of the type of conflict that Christians were facing. He identifies the problem in the church in Christianity. We know the problem is liberalism, but, but this problem tends to make use of uh, traditional Christian terminology while at the same time it means something totally different. And this movement calls itself liberal as if they are liberating you from something, but it is only called that by its adherents, not its opponents. Because in fact, liberalism tends to ignore many relevant facts concerning what we believe and it seeks to impose itself on others. So it's not liberating anybody. It's imposing itself on us. Liberalism tends toward tyranny and oppression. Uh, liberalism takes on many forms and it may even take on many names. But another name that helps to identify liberalism is naturalism. It denies the supernatural acts of God in exchange for the morals of the Bible. Right? It, it denies the supernatural work and um, exchanges it for the morals. We are to live by the principles of Jesus. Okay? You don't really have to believe if he was born of a virgin or died on the cross for our sins or was raised. All you need to believe, all you need to do is do what he called us to do. And you'll be okay. That's, that's naturalism. That's liberalism. Right? Um, sounds like a very early conservative politician by the name of Thomas Jefferson. Denied the supernatural for the moral principles of the Bible. Right? He, he, cut out, he cut his Bible up into pieces. And I love his politics. I love his writings. He's a hero of the nation. I give him that credit. I'm not denying that. But as far as his Christianity goes, if I were you, I wouldn't adopt it. <laughs> right? It was, it was the first signs of biblical liberalism. Okay? Um, and you can have socially, I mean, we see it today in all these influencers. I mean, loose count. Um, but I tend to follow them for some reason. You know, you have the short section on YouTube. And you keep pressing down, and it's another voice. And you, I laugh at a lot of them. But, you know, once in a while you get those, they, they, they keep track of what you watch. So you watch... Uh, conservative political anal uh, analysts, and I watch a lot of them, and sometimes they'll, you know, they'll just pop up all these guys saying some funny things. But a lot of them are socially, politically, morally conservative, but they, they're liberal when it comes to their Bibles. We need to, we need to be distinguished, discerning. I wouldn't go to them for doctrine, right? They're fine in their analysis of society, whatever, but their, their, uh, their doctrine is way off, um, and be, be very careful. And, and this is what turns into moralism or legalism rather than the gospel, right? There's no gospel of grace. They're, they're, they're promoting moralism. Um, but the real problem of man is much deeper than fixing your outward actions. It's, it's, it's soul changing. You need a new nature. You need to be undone from the inside out. That's the, that's the main problem with society, Inside out. So what do you think the problem 
if there is a solution, where, where do you think? It, where do you think you go? Where, where do you? You know, some conservatives today say the problem with our public school system is that there's no more prayer. I say what? That's not the problem. That's not the problem. Machen, Machen fought tooth and nail to get prayer out of public schools. He said the problem's in the pulpit. The problem is that souls have not been transformed by the power of the gospel. So there are less Christians in public. That's where the problem is, if you really want to go there. So the problem starts, humanly speaking, the problem's with the preacher. If he is not preaching the gospel, he's not doing his duty. If he's preaching moralism, if he's preaching some type of you know, social activism instead of the gospel, he's not doing his duty. Right. We, we'll get to the application. That's the point of it. But if you're not preaching the gospel in your sermon, and if out of Christ you're not living the life, right? you can go back to the pre- You're not preaching the gospel. Souls are, not changed. Souls are not being changed. There's a problem here. There's a problem here. And you wonder why people are not living out of that gospel, uh, out of union with Christ. That's where the problem is. And, and this naturalism didn't come out of nowhere, or this liberalism, or by chance, but it was brought about, and he's talking about human terms here. Okay, humanly speaking, worldly speaking. Um, there were many changes to life and society, especially 20s and 30s. You think of industrialism, uh, inventions were being made. Um, but these changes did not stand alone, but there were changes in, human, in the human mind which gave rise to further spiritual changes. And when he says spiritual, he's not talking about, you know, what we consider spiritual as people are spiritually dead and then made alive. He is talking about the human mind and human, um, the human will, the exertion of the human mind. That's what he's talking about by uh, the human spirit there. Uh, because the, the changes that brought about this new industrial world was produced by the conscious activity of the human spirit, right? Uh, this, this, uh, Job gets into it. We'll get into it in a few weeks. The, the good part about humanity is that we're always seeking. We're always seeking to know and to understand. That's a good thing. God put that in, in us to seek and to find and to do things and to build and to um, all this. And all these things, he says, are good, right? You think of the achievements in science and uh, in the sciences of physics, chemistry, history, with psychology and sociology, uh, there was a lust for scientific conquest. And, and we would all agree, I think these are good things. We're not going to say they're bad because unbelievers were a part of it. No, these were all good things that humans achieved. But there were problems. There were problems. And the problem is that the old things tend to come under scrutiny. So, old books, right? Oh, we, we know better than these guys that came before us. So there is this um, pride arising from the fallen nature, right? That looks at progress and says, aha, we beat God. We disproved God. That's the problem. Instead of using what we have um, accomplished for the glory of God, we say, well, we have outsmarted him. Our knowledge is better than his knowledge in that old dusty book. And that was the problem in his day. It's the problem today um, in every field, in every area. 
you know, um, instead of glorifying God and contributing to the well of society and the well well-being of man, we we actually use um, our technology, our sciences for the ill of man and, and the downfall of man. Nazi Germany, perfect example. Um, abortion, perfect example. And uh, it, the list goes on and. Uh, Euthanasia, right? Did I say that right? Okay. Right. I was thinking euphemism at the same time. But, uh, part of the problem, right? It, the problem is found in the nature of man, and these things can get to our heads. It's, it's an instrument to elevate man rather than uh, serve God and serve neighbor. Uh, today, many people thumb their nose down on the past, as if we are so much better than before. We are better in many ways, but in many ways we're not. We're not. And we've referred to uh, Christianity as, you know, basing itself on an ancient book. I mean, we've, we've progressed so much. Why would you rely on something 2,000 years ago? When all the science disproves it. The funny thing is, they were saying this decades ago, but now it's the reverse, right? They're saying, actually, I think there is a God, guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's seen in creation all around us. And he left his fingerprint on everything. So he wants, So the ultimate question is, how can a first century religion ever stand the test of 20th and 21st century? I added that, 21st century science. Machen wasn't trying to make Christianity relevant to modern appetites. Um, and there are always two extremes to avoid in trying to deal with the conflict. There's the extreme of getting rid of science altogether and saying, let's go back to prim- primitive times, a more you know, laid-back time. Uh, you don't really care if people are sick and dying and yeah, whatever. Um, that's just part of life. I mean, you come and you go and you kind of exclude science, exclude doctors and nurses and all the advancements we've had. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is to exalt the sciences and exalt uh, what we call, you know, the, I don't know if it's liberal arts or whatever, above, above God and above his power. Um, he asked the question, what if history was to prove, and that's in quotes, that Jesus never existed? Would you still believe and have faith? Right? Would you still believe and have faith? What becomes the authority in your life? And what is the relation between Christianity and the modern culture? May Christianity be maintained in the scientific age. Uh, This is the problem that liberalism attempted to solve. This is the answer they, this is the question they wanted to answer. Because there was scientific, quote unquote, objections to some of the fundamental truths of the Bible and Christianity. Uh, And and mind you, if you ever heard this acronym, liberals treat the Bible as a book of instructions before leaving earth. That's, I don't know if many people know this, but that's a liberal take on what the Bible is. It's not a book of instructions. It's a book of things we ought to believe, right? Most important. There are instructions there, but you've got to believe what's behind the instructions. Um, And so they try to boil down the Bible to, you know, just the morals of the Bible in response to science and the so-called scientific um, developments we've 
we, we had in the 20s and 30s, and you think back 100 years, we've come a long way since then. Uh, you, you know, uh, triple the time, right? Um, so, and, and we're finding out more and more things that actually prove the opposite of what they thought. Um, and so they left out uh, the belief in the person of Christ, basically, his human and divine nature, his virgin and miraculous birth and incarnation and his death and resurrection. They, they left this up to, to whoever it is who's going to teach to, whether or not they believe in these things. Right. Didn't really matter. What matters is the moral, moral parts because scientifically we've disproven all, all this other stuff. But the truth is we cannot be saved without these truths. We cannot be saved. But they tried to strip these truths and boil the Bible down to a book of morals, ethics, um, and, you know, and, and this issue goes back to trying to make Christianity a public religion. This is why he had problems with making Christianity a public religion for public schools. And, and you know, it gets sucked in and grouped with other forms of Christianity, even this form of Christianity that says it's not that important that you believe those things. It's important that you follow the golden rule. But what's, it, what's the point of the golden rule without the God of the golden rule? And the knowledge of the God of the golden rule. What did Jesus say was eternal life? He didn't say follow the golden rule. He said eternal life is knowing you. The only true God. And his son Jesus Christ. Right. So. So the morals of Jesus become the essence of Christianity. Rather than doctrine. The conservative moralist of today is very close to the liberal of Machen's day. So beware before you condone everything these, these guys are saying because they're closer to the liberal of Machen's day than they are to Christianity. They're boiling the Bible down to a bunch of morals in a time where morals is gone. And so Christians are running to them for leadership, even in the church. I'm fine with that in society. You know, there are a lot of good leaders who are not Christians. But in the church, it, won't, it shouldn't enter the pulpit. Right. Um, there are conservative moralists, legalists, people who believe in the morals that Jesus taught. Love God, love neighbor, the Ten Commandments. They believe in the narrow road. They're socially and politically conservative, but who are liberal with their Bibles and don't believe in all this supernatural stuff. Um, you probably know people who are close to you today who are like this. Right? And families who are generally Christian. Um, but really, yeah, can't be tied down with Jesus. I mean, I know this guy who's a Buddhist. He's just like me. He believes in the same things. You know, do unto others as others would do unto me. But I can't be bothered with whether or not he believes in all this doctrine. So, and I would add that many American evangelicals probably fall into this camp today. Maybe they're tied to a group, maybe they're tied to a political party, a social construct, the way they were raised. Well, I grew up in church, I just do what Jesus told me to do, even though I don't believe in who he is, according to your interpretation. That's the other thing. It's your interpretation. Jesus said, if I do all this stuff, I'll be safe on judgment day, but that's not what he said. And that's the problem with cherry-picking the Bible. What is the, it, I probably said this somewhere else and I'll repeat myself, but where do liberals go? as the most important part of the Bible. 
where do liberals go for pretty much all of their teaching? Huh? Well, it's the New Testament, right, but even in the New Testament, they deny Paul. They, Paul, yeah, all that doctrine stuff. He was talking about doctrines of grace and what's of first importance, that, died, that Jesus died on the cross and he was raised? That, that's not that important. What's the most important place? Jesus' words. The red-letter Bible. Right? Jesus' words is more important than anything else in the Bible. So where you go is the Sermon on the Mount is where you learn about true Christianity. And so... If you notice, the Sermon on the Mount deals with, um, even though it does deal with the supernatural, but it deals with our natural relationships, mostly. And, again, cutting the Bible up into pieces and saying, well, you Christians are not following the golden rule. Right? Denying, in one sense, sanctification, that it's an ongoing process. Uh, the golden rule is never lived up to in our life in our lifetime we're never we're never going to live up to it perfectly um, and so again again boiling the Bible down to morals or moralism um, and Jesus even said this and for unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins that's John eight twenty four. You, you can live as moral as you want. But if you deny Jesus, your morals are not rooted in where it should be. Right? Jesus taught doctrine as well as practice, not just practice. The two are inseparable. Morals are important, but they are just evidence of what you believe. So really, as Jesus said, you know, you, you're just doing what is expected of you as a servant. Right? What is at the root of it? Is the question, is the problem. They are the fruits and not the roots. And I'm going to stop there because I still have much to go on this introduction, but I'm going to stop there. We hit about the hour mark, just about. And we'll pick up uh, on how this naturalism, this liberalism, is a form of atheism. Because it's rooted in, in materialism. This world is all that there is. Right? That's what the liberal believes. This world is all that there is. All you've got to do is live accordingly to what Jesus said. And you'll be okay. It doesn't matter what you believe. Big problem. Harley, would you mind closing in prayer?